Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Rolling, take one. You can listen to it afterwards and you can figure it out yourself. Is it going to be all right? Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. On today's show, which is number 42, The Answer to Life, the Universe, and Everything, we'll be talking about the most photographed American in the 19th century and how he used photography against slavery and racism. We'll give a call to photographer Octavia Sharp, who has been photographing mausoleums for decades. Tiff and Sinclair will drop by for some knowledge dropping. We'll have a zine review, the answering machine, and, oh my god, so much more. But first, Vanya, how the hell are you? Uh, good. The last two weeks, I kind of been hopping back in the water. So yay! Ooh, hopping. Yeah. Well, not exactly hopping. Okay. Maybe wobbling back. Seriously, I needed it so badly. I've been moping around the house, being sad about auto, and completely being unmotivated to shoot anything. Getting in and shooting two rolls of Fuji NPS two twenty was kind of exactly what I needed. Two rolls of two twenty is like a thousand rolls of one twenty. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. That was like in the matter of two or three days. Oh, okay. It wasn't like one session. <laughs> uh, I also had a little photo shoot with some local surfer girls, and those I'm actually scanning right now. They're very wonderful. Yeah. I've seen them. I'm excited and impressed by them. They're so fun. Yeah. Yeah. I hope to share some of them. Um, it's just a friend of mine. She's uh, hand sewing bathing suits, kind of starting a little company. Yeah. She wanted to get some some pictures with me. And I was like, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> Shoot some film. There was this one roll of 35 millimeter that I've been savoring forever. Okay. What is it? <laughs> well, so Salty Joe from Morro Bay, he actually sent this to me and it is variochrome. It's from Rolly. So oh. I think it was, it's like a limited edition. I want to say it's either... Is it retrochrome or crossbird maybe before that? It was before those yeah, two yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've had it for years and I've kind of been just saving it because I'm like, oh, I need to shoot it, but I don't know what to shoot it. And so I finally shot it. <laughs> and how, how did it? I've seen this one, but how did it turn out? Grainy AF. <laughs> <laughs> for all you E6ers out there, I cross-processed it. Ooh. Yeah, but it came out so good, and the colors are wonderful, and I'll definitely have to post a few. It, the light was just kind of perfect, so yeah, it was pretty pretty good. Couple weeks. How about uh, how about you? How have you been? Yeah, I had a great photo day this past Sunday. Kind of traveled out to Adams County, Washington, which is a little south and a little east of where I've been normally going. And I just drove some random back roads to see what I could see. And when I got there, there it was like windy and there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And a cloudless sky would be like, oh, it's the perfect day to some beachgoer or something. And it, but for a photographer, it means a boring as hell sky. So. I threw a red filter on the Mamiya and made the best of a really boring situation. But around noon, that all changed and these clouds rolled in. They kind of not rolled in, but they kind of, you know, like when you're just kind of driving around and all of a sudden there's clouds. You're like, where the hell did these come from? I didn't notice them at all. They probably filter in here and there. I don't know how clouds work. I'm a <laughs> photographer. So when the clouds rolled in, I discovered or remembered, I guess, something about Fomapan 100. We've, I think we've both agreed that Fomapan 100 is probably the best film that's not ultra fine. 
Yeah, pretty much. Between that and Arista. (laughs) (laughs) So when it comes to like a slightly cloudy sky, if you want to make it look really dramatic, you throw a yellow filter on there and it looks like this, the the fucking apocalypse. The clouds, like they were thickening up and I'd, I'd have to wait for light because the sun would be behind them. But once the light came, the sky looked just brooding and ominous. And I've posted a few photos by this point and... I just love it. It just makes a kind of a boring day. Very, it makes it seem like it's a lot more memorable than it was. Like, oh my God, I'm on this, this, this dirt road in the middle of nowhere and there's these storms climbing all over the place. And no, that's, that wasn't the case at all. This, there was blue sky everywhere. I just happened to know how to pick the spot to photograph. So the end of that day was punctuated at this concrete bridge, really in the middle of nowhere. It's public land, but the whole place was just empty. There was nobody there. And the landscape is what's known as the channeled scablands. And there's some technical name for it. Sort of a shrub step channeled scablands combo. This golden light in late afternoon, it just, oh, it illuminated everything. And it was just beautiful. And oh, I fucking love it there. So yeah, that's my last two weeks highlighted by one day. Each episode, we pose a question to our listeners. In turn, they call us up and leave a voice message, giving us their insight, answers, and silliness. And by leave us a voice message, we mean they send us a voice message on Instagram. And you can too. So what was the question we asked this time around? Well, this one was kind of odd. It was, what vehicle-related things have you done to accommodate your photography? Oh, yes, I do remember that one. Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) We've got a few calls to get through. People kept it mercifully short this time. And thank you so much for that. Brevity is next to godliness. Hello, no one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hi, my name is Adam Wilson on Instagram at snakesforbreaks, one word. Now, I drive a small car, and one thing I hate on a photography trip is getting, like, five different camera bags everywhere. So what I did is I built a small chest of drawers for the cargo area of my car that I can fill with cameras. And that makes things a lot more organized during a long trip. But of course, the other important thing is a good lumbar cushion and a good podcast on the radio. Okay, I love drawers. Yeah, drawers. I don't understand why we don't have more drawers. I don't know. Like, why is that like a custom thing even? Like, you don't see a lot of places even offering it. Maybe for like vans or things like that. But for like, what I drive a hatchback, there should just be drawers in the back. <laughs> Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. There should be drawers. There should be all sorts of things. I mean, they have gotten their shit together with cup holders, you know, the last like two decades. Yeah, they've gotten, they've done better. I remember when I was a kid, we had the, the cup holders that kind of like hung to the window. Oh, yeah. I still have one in my Volvo. It actually clicks into the glove box. Oh, and fancy. Sometimes it, <laughs> if it's too heavy, it'll just fall. <laughs> so. Eh. <laughs> Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Ooh, I've had a car. It was a Land Rover Discovery. Okay. 2001. Oh, oh, wow. I fucking love that car so much. It was amazing. Epic car. Um, A nightmare. It would overheat all the time. It was a lemon. I had to get rid of it. It was oh. a sad day. But I think I counted like maybe 12 cup holders in the entire car. Oh, wow. It was incredible. <laughs> 
Wow, way more cup holders than cups. That's just wonderful. <laughs> I know. I could fill up so many cups. <laughs> but- Super big gulps. <laughs> Hello there. This is Jake at Juxtapose Jake on Instagram. The one vehicle related thing that I do for photography is I always keep a tripod in my car. My roommate gave me this no name one. So I always just throw it in the back of my car. It doesn't say anything on it. So hopefully nobody will break into my car. It's been in there for about a year. It's been a lifesaver. Genius. Yeah. Keeping equipment in your car, I mean, when you can, makes sense. I I can't. Mm -hmm. Literally anything I put in my car will be stolen. Mm. It reminds me of the whole dark cloth situation. Okay. Well, yes, I could keep a dark cloth. And I do. Actually, I started doing that. When? This past weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. So you're going to do that from now on. (laughs) I am. No, it's a great idea. Things like that, nobody's going to steal a dark cloth. No one really even knows what it is. But if there's like a tripod, if I had a tripod in my car, it would be stolen. Absolutely. It doesn't doesn't help that the Subaru is super easy to break into. Yeah. Not going to tell you how, but you can do it. Can you get like, maybe like a club for your steering wheel that actually turns into a tripod? Ooh. Eh? Am I too late for that? I feel like that should have been a thing like 30 years ago. I saw somebody using a club like last week. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what the hell? (laughs) The last known person. (laughs) I wanted to steal the club just to have one. Well, I didn't necessarily buy this vehicle specifically for my photography. It kind of helps since I own an early 2000s Jeep Wrangler, which I can take the roof off and the doors off and fold the window down and has a roll cage so I can mount stuff to it. So, yeah, I guess you could say that was a modification, I suppose. Plus, it's got four-wheel drive so I can get my ass out of all the shit I get stuck into. So, that helps. Hmm. Now, coming up later in the episode, we have a review of the zine Grainy Blur, which is a pinhole zine. In one of the photos, he straps a pinhole camera to a shopping cart. So any wheels that are on the store, so everything around the shopping cart is kind of blurred, but the shopping cart is steady. This is what August needs to do to his Jeep Wrangler, is strap a pinhole camera to the roll cage so that it's kind of pointing down so that the vehicle itself will be still Mm-hmm. And everything around the vehicle, including the driver's actions, will be blurred. Yeah, that would be amazing. Go. Challenge. Yes, okay, so he's got some work to do. <laughs> hey guys, um, David calling here. Um, I haven't made any like photography modifications to my car, but recently I went to Utah for, for the, a weekend trip. And when we were on our way back, we did like a scenic route through the the park and I just had my cousin drive my car while I stuck my head out the window and had a super wide angle lens and was just snapping away at pictures just to avoid like having to stop and slow down and and get out the car like every five minutes so yeah yeah the worst thing about national parks is getting out and enjoying them yeah. So just going around your car, hanging out with the window is perfect. I'm joking. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> the, I it's like the only this, like, time I like being a passenger. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, I did that once for a trip where actually I was with, it was when I was shooting digital and I was with somebody who had my camera and I would point out the things for her to shoot. I'm like, oh, shoot this, shoot that. No, shoot this way while I was driving. And 
it was kind of a weird Andy Warhol experience because <laughs> they were technically my pictures, but she's the one who took them. Mm. So, yeah. Um, try that next time. Not just a spare driver, but a spare photographer to take your pictures for you. Hey, Eric and Manya, it's Chris. The only thing I have done to my car to help with photography is ensure that I have a Bluetooth adapter so that I can use my iPhone to play music. Because if you don't have good tunes, it ain't worth going. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much to say about this one. And again, <laughs> I'm glad I have... I, I, I'm so glad to have the van, obviously. Yeah, yeah. The Volvo has a tape deck and it's just not working right now because the wiring's just rotted. Um... I am collecting tapes, though. <laughs> Perfect. So if anybody has any tapes that they want to send my way, they're more than welcome <laughs> to. <laughs> Kevin from Philadelphia is sending me war because I actually got oh. that. Yeah. I, I uh, ordered the vinyl and it came broken. So. It did. Yeah, yeah. Someone stepped on it a lot. A lot. Yeah. A lot. a lot. I definitely feel like it's part of just the experience of just driving and just getting away to help me with my photography when i travel um i like to go places on motorbike and i converted my tank bag into a camera bag by buying a bunch of foam and chopping various inserts into the shape of my various cameras that way it's very easy for me to pull over the side of the road and get a few shots off oh i like that he sent a picture and it is it's a it's a tank bag it's a bag that is strapped to your gas tank on a motorcycle. Wow. And that's a, the perfect place to put a camera because it's right there. It's perfect use for a, for a tank bag. That's incredible. This is Jason Beener, uh, just Jason Beener on Instagram. I built myself an entire portable dark room in the back of my Toyota Land Cruiser to use for wet plate. Um, a whole sliding drawer system that I can pull out and pop up a, a dark box with a nice red window and a tent so I can take all my wet plate stuff on the road. Works pretty good. I have taken it on a cross-country road trip and hopefully I'll be doing it again here pretty soon. Holy shit. Yeah. I want to meet up with Jason. <laughs> that is so cool. It, it, it is. Are you gushing? Are you blushing? I'm blushing and gushing over this. Absolutely. I'm I'm jealous. I'm a portable darkroom in the back of a, li- a land cruiser is, I guess it wasn't like, oh, I need to do this. But that almost seems like the natural next step for me, you know? I am generally shooting around my car anyway. Sometimes I'll hike and all of that. Mm -hmm. But I'm usually right by my car along the road. So doing wet plate or tin type or something like that would be so easy Mm -hmm. where I I am. Easy, but it would be very convenient to have all of that stuff in the back of probably not a Subaru. I might have to upgrade to a Toyota Land Cruiser. Who knows? No, I think you should get one of those uh, little micro buses, the Mitsubishi ones. Yep, you're 100% right. Perfect. Hey guys, it's Zach Cyphers at the Motorcycle Librarian on Instagram. I'm planning some adventures. I love driving into the Cascades and taking the ferry across to the San Juan Islands. My challenge is how do I ride the motorcycle with a camera, keep the camera at the ready, sort of in a quick draw 
capacity, but also protect it. So right now I have some bags that sit on the back of the bike, and then I have a tank bag that's uh, sort of a smaller bag that sits on top of the motorcycle's gas tank. Today I had it on my to-do list to go out and test everything out and uh, see if I could move the camera to a more readily available spot, but also kind of cushion it from impact. Well, let me introduce you to the gentleman who left a voice message two voice messages ago (laughs) about the tank bag. Let me also introduce you to a local store called the Friendly Foam Store. There's one in Lake City, and I think there's one in Everett. So Zach is local to me, and I would suggest maybe going in there, seeing what they have as far as foam, and seeing what they can do to accommodate your tank bag. They will work with you. I've worked with them a little bit, and they are, well, they're friendly. That's the name of their store. (laughs) So that's all of our voice messages. Thank you all for getting caught. Okay, so I guess we should probably answer this, hmm? Okay, so if you guys don't know, I do have a Sprinter van, which is kind of sometimes annoying even to me. I got it in 2016 as a crew van for my plumbing company, and I have taken it over since. So every year I do a small modification because everything is ridiculously expensive (laughs) and like stupid expensive when it comes to sprinters. (laughs) So a lot of it's like do it yourself. And then uh, my brother, Giorgio, has helped me a bunch with the inside, like insulating it and doing all sorts of fun stuff. It's mostly for traveling and camping, but I do drive it around town right now because my Volvo is still getting fixed (laughs) at the moment. (laughs) It's been since the podcast began. Oh my God, seriously. It It really has. It's been so long. (laughs) I think he just wants my Volvo, so he's just fixing it for himself. I think he has your Volvo. Well, he definitely has it. (laughs) But uh, I don't know. One thing I will say is a very important thing with cars is if I can get my 10 foot longboard in, into it, not on the roof, inside. Because I actually like putting my surfboards inside my car. I do not like driving long distances with them on the roof. It drives me insane. Makes sense. It stresses me out. And I've had a strap break with like tons of boards <laughs> strewn oh. across the PCH before. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been a Damn. thing. Damn. Okay. I plan on modifying the Sprinter more and more as time goes on. If I can somehow get rich. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, I don't know. So what do you plan on doing to it? Well, I guess right now I would like to find a spot inside it for like cleaning stuff like myself, Mm. like shower, water tank, water storage, things like that. That would also aid developing as well. Yes. So I could do all that stuff, but I mean, I do have the trailer and I would like to haul that around if possible at some point. I mean, I did get it portable for a reason. Mm-hmm. I have all these like grand ideas, but I need more money <laughs> to, <laughs> to finish them all. I need to start selling some cameras or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I love modifying things. I like making them my own and I'm not afraid to do it. So Okay. <laughs> okay, Eric, what have you done? 
Well, sort of like Denise a couple of episodes ago, I got myself a car that could handle the roads I wanted to photograph on. I like the old and the abandoned stuff, and to get to some of that, you need a high-clearance vehicle. So a few years ago, I bought myself a Subaru Crosstrek, and since then, I've added skid plates, big dumb tires, and a full-size spare, because for some reason, this car that's supposed to be able to go off-road doesn't have tires to do that, nor a full-size spare. Anyway... I haven't done much more than that to the car, but I've gathered a few storage items that I use, some softish trunk storage that I buckle into the back seat, or sometimes buckle into the front seat if I'm feeling extra frisky. When I have these soft luggage, the the cameras, they live in there. And I also have a small cooler for the film and a large 12-volt cooler for more film. As for more, I'd like to get a two inch lift, I guess because the big dumb tires aren't big and dumb enough. I bottomed out on a rock this last weekend and it hit the skid plate like really good, like a real good whack. And it would be nice to not not do that as much. I mean, it's fun and it's fun to get under there when you're changing the oil and see the big chunks of, of skid plate that have been taken out. That's always neat. I thought about a roof rack that could hold my weight so I could shoot from the roof, but yeah, I don't think I'd ever do that. Oh, no. I tried to have you climb up on my roof, and you were not about it. I didn't care for it. On my, I have a ladder in the back of my van, too, so I can climb up on the roof and get a, a higher perspective, a bird's eye view. A bird's eye view. <laughs> also, I've seen how you drive your car. I'm a, I'm a careful driver, mostly. Mostly. Mostly a careful mostly, driver. Mostly careful. <laughs> I'll never forget that time we were in Kansas and I just see your car just like flying in the air, like tires spinning in. <laughs> I caught air from a cattle guard that yeah. was, sometimes you get the cattle guards and there's like a, they, the water has settled underneath them and there's like a big ditch on the other side of them. And you know, I, I didn't really see it. And oh, dude, sat- he hit that thing like full speed. Then I rolled up next to him, rolled my passenger side window, and laughed at him for like two minutes at least. <laughs> he just laughed. He just laughed. I but know. that's all right. I'm that's sorry, right. you guys. I'm always laughing. You'll get yours. Oh, I'm sure I will. <laughs> oh, I did. I, you remember you took me on the like super dirt, muddy road, and I slid down to the bottom of it? Yes. Also in Kansas. Yeah, terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I do not a- have four-wheel drive. <laughs> it was not fun. <laughs> Yo, what up, my dudes? Sip and Sinclair dropping in to crash the party with a platter full of food for thought. I felt like reliving my college years and having unsolicited conversations with unassuming bystanders about topics only myself and a handful of other socially awkward individuals might take interest in. Given that we're still in the pandem era, I decided to target the author lens audience in order to satiate my chatterbox desire. I mean, what are you gonna do? Walk away from me? You can't. I mean, you could spam the skip 15 seconds button, but why would you do that to your old pal Tiffin, right? Right. Anyways, let's get into it. I wanted to talk your ear off about the intricacies surrounding the concept of the death of the amateur photographer. This has a lot to do in part with where we perceive our social ranking to be within the personality marketplace. Now, if you are unfamiliar with the concept of the personality marketplace, Let me give you the abridged version you would most likely hear from a second-year philosophy student sunbathing on the campus quad while wearing St. Laurent hemp sandals and tearing into a box of $25 vegan Cheez-Its. The long and short of it is, we, as social beings, have an innate desire to belong and be accepted as part of the collective, i.e. society. Therefore, we try to advertise our traits and personality quirks in an effort to enhance our perceived social value. 
For many individuals, the driving force fueling their desire to rank high within this social economic system is essentially the thought of, how can I make them think I'm good enough? How can I convince them I'm good enough to associate with? You're probably thinking to yourself, well, what does this have to do with photography? My dude, I know your thumb is probably hovering over the skip button, but I assure you this will all make sense in a second. Given the onset of social media and its rise in popularity for advertising, we somehow realize that we can use these same platforms to market ourselves. The best way to do that is, of course, through visuals. Imagery. As a result, Instagram has become a major player in helping individuals increase their perceived social value, or at least feel like they are increasing their value and their ranking within the social marketplace. Now, within this theoretical framework, this is where the concept of the amateur photographer and photograph ceases to exist. When we pivot from taking an image for the sake of artistic expression or in the name of personal documentation and shift our intention to actuating the shutter for the sole purpose of self-promotion, whatever form that may take, that is when a photograph becomes a marketing tool and the individual making said photograph becomes an active player in our social economic system. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? You are no longer an amateur if you're making and posting images with the intention to market your personal life and therefore boost your perceived value. For those who may need further clarification, let's view this through a transactional lens. You take a picture, you post the image. Whether you agree or disagree with what I'm about to say next is entirely up to you, but you end up getting paid or compensated for the image and the effort that went into producing the post. You are compensated in likes. You are compensated in some form of external validation. A transaction takes place. Granted, not a monetary one, but a form of compensation is provided. As far as I know, if you are being compensated or paid for something, you are no longer quote-unquote an amateur at that something. And that, my friends, is how we have inadvertently and perhaps unintentionally slayed the amateur photographer within all of us. If you disagree, please don't rain down on Vanya and Eric. Come at me with full force. They don't even know about this. They just simply tasked me with keeping you all entertained while Eric looked for an extension cord for the rotary phone they will be using to give our pal Octavia Sharp a call. Fun fact about Octavia, she photographs mausoleums. How cool is that? Anyways, I look forward to hearing from those of you who may or may not agree with me. Later dudes, I'm about to tear into my $5 box of cheeses. When we first saw Octavia Sharp's work, it was like something out of a mid-century magazine. The colors, the furniture, even the lighting and angles were from another time. But upon closer inspection, there was something else going on there. These weren't photographs of living rooms. These were shots of mausoleums and funeral homes. And all of that warrants a call. So, let's give Octavia a call. Hello. 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 Hi, how are you? Hello. Good. How are you? <laughs> Good. Great. <laughs> okay, I have my window open because it's hot up here, so just let me know. Oh, that should be fine. That should be fine. If you start hearing anything, and also, sorry about the hair. I have hair now. I'm not used to the hair, so it's in the way. <laughs> yeah, I would be lost with hair, so. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, look at you and your fancy mics. Oh, yeah, we've got some fancy like mics. <laughs> All right, so do you want to just get into it? Okay. Yeah, let's do it. So you've been shooting film for quite a while now. 
what's your history with film photography and how did you get to like, where you are now? I started in high school. I, I have no idea what originally made me pick up the camera and stop shooting. The only thing I can think of maybe is that every time we would go to our grandparents' house or my grandparents' house for um, Christmas holidays and stuff, I always looked through the photo albums. That was like the one thing I wanted to do every time we went. I just wanted to look through the photo albums. Mm. So I don't know if that had anything to do with it. So I really don't remember why I picked up the camera. But I did in high school. I was on the paper. When the time came to go to college, I had to pick something. So I was like, oh, you can go to school for photography. So I'll do that. So I went to art school, undergraduate, and then... When I graduated, I worked in a film lab for a while and then decided to go back to school, to graduate school, because then you could teach at the university level. And I thought, well, that would be good. So then I went to grad school, discovered I don't like teaching at the university (laughs) level or really any (laughs) level, probably. (laughs) But that's kind of how the story of the film stuff started. I went to school. So I have a master's in studio arts with a concentration in photography. And then I tried to do that, some photography related stuff when I got out of school, which eh, it it was all right. It was doing some adjunct teaching, which was not the best, but they had a color printer. So I was like, I'll do it. (laughs) And (laughs) really the only reason to teach darkroom access. (laughs) I actually had a job at Getty Images when we first moved to Chicago, but it was not a glamorous one. It was very boring. I was like filling out contracts for stock photography. Oh, wow. And so you sat at a desk with like these headset on. So it was like time life operator for stock images. (laughs) It was very boring. And you couldn't surf the internet. You could look at all the Getty images you wanted. But I mean, there would be days that I did not get a phone call. So you're just like scrolling through stock images all day waiting wow. for someone to call you so so then by the end of 2020 i was just sitting there with nothing to do and surfing around on the internet and stuff as one does when you have a lot of time and then somehow came across like all the all these people posting film images on instagram and i'm like what <laughs> what's happening oh wow so did, so did you not know about like a film revival that happened no, I had no idea. Wow. Oh. Okay. Awesome. Because I guess if you don't, I mean, I yeah. spend a fair amount of time online, but I don't deep dive and really get into it. I mean, I had a personal Instagram account with like a few people that I know on there, but I didn't really deep dive into the whole thing that much. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so, you know, I just kind of skimmed the surface. If you're just skimming the surface as a, a regular user, you don't really come across some of this stuff and then... I think it was a YouTube video, and I'm like, why is this dude talking about film photography? <laughs> and there you go. You go down the rabbit hole, and you're like, what's happened? So you haven't been on Instagram for very long, uh, and a lot of the photos you're posting were you know, from 20 years ago. So how did you have those um, filed away? Um, I just have them in uh, archival notebooks, and they've mm-hmm. just been s- literally sitting on a shelf for over 20 years so mm-hmm. wow i was like well i guess i'll start scanning so uh, well let's hit it then most of the photos you've been sharing have been taken in mausoleums and funeral homes that's that's yeah. sort of your mo at least on instagram at this point it is why mausoleums yeah why mausoleums <laughs> i was in grad school when i was in grad school i shot a lot of interiors of just whatever buildings i had to take a four by five class 
And one of the assignments in four by five is you have to shoot a inside interior. And I don't like people. So I'm like, where can I go that's inside a building? No one's going to be around. So as you do, and you're just driving around trying to think of something like, oh, that's a fun cemetery. We've all been there. Mm-hmm. Let's drive through there and see if there's anything interesting. I know there's not a building. Oh, look, there's a mausoleum. Oh, look, that one has a window busted out. And so I think the very first one I did was with a four by five. And it's one of the smaller mausoleums, and it's from an outside view. And the window was busted, so I could see inside. It was only like a six or eight person one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That turned out pretty good. And I was like, oh, well, there you go. And got to do another one because you got to have three for critique every week. And so driving around the cemetery, there's a bigger building. I'm like, what? There's bigger ones? And I just went inside and was like, these are great. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to ask you that. Like, how is... How does that work? Even with just film photography, it takes a while to kind of set up. And Oh, I'm in there with the tripod and you got the camera on the tripod and just using whatever light is there because I'm way too lazy to carry lights around. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. What is a lot to bring into a mausoleum, maybe? Yeah. Oh, could you imagine? <laughs> like, go in there and be like, who is it? Gregory Cruson have like 500 lights yeah. set up everywhere. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine? <laughs> So when you did your first one, were you nervous? No, because until that point, I've always just been out and about with a camera. Okay. And if people are looking at me, then they're looking at me. I don't, it doesn't bother me that much. So, and and then here, no one's around, so no one's paying any attention. It wasn't creepy. I was just happy that they, they looked so good. I'm like, these are working and they act and the photos look good. And when we say mausoleums, they're not like the, 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 like the six or eight person concrete ones right. that you see in the like in most cemeteries these are huge church like buildings with wings and and hallways and hallways and it's a they're really intricate places there's one in portland that's really historic and huge and i think if you read the description they say there's like three or four miles of of hallways just in this one mausoleum because wow. it's like eight stories wow yeah so since from your first time shooting a mausoleum to you still you still shoot them now, or at least you're shooting them again, is, is has your approach changed at all? I don't know if the approach has changed specifically for mausoleums, but just in photography in general, because mm-hmm. I've always been more lean towards a documentary mm-hmm. type of style. I always felt like I was running the risk that the things that are in the photograph were way more interesting than my actual photograph is the reason why the photograph is interesting just because of what's in it or is it because of the way it's shot the way it's presented the way the lighting hits so just trying to yeah make some of that as interesting if not hopefully more interesting than the actual just stuff that's in the photograph oh i definitely see that in a lot of the tones and colors on the the interior shots for sure those i have no idea they ask me any technical <laughs> questions i do not know because <laughs> half the time i'm like that's not what it what where did that pink come from there was no <laughs> pink there i'm in there and there could be like a tungsten over here and a fluorescent over there and then you have the stained glass windows who knows what kind of light that color is coming through so a lot of times i get these weird like i don't know where that blue came from or mm-hmm. Oh, there's some weird orange. So there's an element of of surprise, which kind of lends the whole the whole film thing anyway, because yeah. you don't yeah. really know what you're getting, and then you get it back from the lab or you develop it yourself, and you're like, 
Woohoo! That's fun. <laughs> this is a project that you are revisiting, or is it more of a continuation? I would say it's more of a both. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am continuing. I was shooting the mausoleums before, and I'm continuing that now. I don't think I'm anywhere near done. I've been shooting some lately, so now I have a little bit more, and then I'm just going to keep going. So it's a continuation. I have revisited literally one of the mausoleums that I shot a long time ago because we were in Chicago for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. uh, while we were waiting for our stuff to get to St. Louis. And I was like, well, this is where the big mid-century one that everyone seems to like. Yeah. Take some more. You know, it's like lamps and chairs and lamps and chairs. chairs. (laughs) Had the place changed much over the years? I think they had moved a few things around because I was like, okay, I know I have, I shot this and there was a couch there. So they moved the furniture a little bit, but (laughs) it looks exactly the same. All right. Story time. Have you had any negative reaction uh, with staff or security at the mausoleums? And what do they think if they like come up to you and ask you like what you're doing? There, I've only had a problem at one mausoleum, and that was the one in Portland mm-hmm. um, w- during COVID. So, I mean, I'm going to give that lady some slack mm-hmm. um, because I didn't go in there anyway. Because, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, because the first time she caught me and made me leave, and I was like, so you can't come in the mausoleum? She's like, only if you're visiting family and friends. So I went home, looked on my phone, found a name of someone on the wall, which is probably not the best thing to do, <laughs> and then dragged my mother into this ruse, went back to the mausoleum. The lady was like, are you here to visit family or friend? I was like, yeah, the Rosenbaum's down there by the, you know, St. Joseph statue. <laughs> amazing and she just looked at me like what i'm like yeah we're doing a f-. she's like are you gonna take pictures i'm like yeah we're doing a family history hereditary you know project and we're just doing you know she's like okay i don't think she believed me but i went but she let us go in nice. she let us go in i think she gave up because i i was i was stubborn this time i was like i'm born that's really the only uh like opposition you've Found? Yeah, that's the only time. And wow. then uh, me and my husband went to one in Chicago, the the big, the big, really nice one that I really, really like. And I was like all excited. And some guy came up, a worker there, and he, he he's coming towards us. I was like, oh, God, here we go. We're getting kicked out. And he came up and he was like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, we're just taking some photos. And I was like, here it is. In my head, I was like, here, here we're getting kicked out. He's like, oh, man, you need to go up on the floor upstairs. That <laughs> room upstairs really cool just get on the elevator go up to the next level when you come out it's right there so that guy was giving us direction nice nice, to a better place (laughs) so when you've been places been muslims have you seen other photographers there no wow i've never seen anybody there at all except people the the few people that happen to be coming in to actually visit friends and family Would you encourage other photographers to do something like this? Absolutely not. That's my thing. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no. Every time I see a mausoleum pop up on Instagram now, I was like, that's mine. <laughs> I would encourage people to take photographs of what they're interested in yeah. and taking photographs. As it happens to be mausoleums, yeah, go go in there. They're, some of them are very sparse. 
and some of them look like the set of a madman. So it just, <laughs> we went into one in Chicago. I didn't photograph it. Um, my husband was driving me around. I just, I popped in real quick and I came out and I'm like, it looks like a mall in there. Wow. It had that, like, levels and railings and you can look down. And literally, if you just started putting some storefronts, I'd be like, yeah, it <laughs> looked like a mall. It's kind of terrifying. It is terrifying because as much as I hate malls, I would really hate to be buried in something that looks like a mall. Yeah, can you imagine? That's where Tiffany will be buried. <laughs> so since you, I guess we're winding down here, leaving photography, leaving everything behind for this one. So you've been around a lot of places with after death care. Is it called after death care? After life care. I suppose it's not after death. No, so it's af not. It's not after so. death. That would be vampires. I think after death is just death. Yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> pretty sure that's it. Have you thought about how you'd like your remains to be cared for? For the longest time, I thought just to be cremated mm -hmm. and be done with it and then just go spread me somewhere. I'm good to go. Then I posted a picture the other day and realized I knew I knew I had this image, but there's a lamp and it has two urns okay. that are part of the lamp. Oh. And I was like, well, that could be fun. Yeah. You know, like be a lamp or just see you could be a lamp <laughs> those lamps be, and chairs lamps, and, lamps chairs. and chairs i could be someday i could be a lamp but um but then w where am i gonna live who's gonna you know and then so now i don't think i want to be a lamp although that would be if if i'm cremated and someone doesn't want to get rid of me then <laughs> make me a lamp i'll be super happy <laughs> okay so last question yes this is actually the question that we'll be asking everybody for our next episode to answer. What's your least favorite thing about being a photographer? No, it's all great. <laughs> it really, it really is. I'm one. Of, I'm one of those people. Is it all equally uh, great though? Well, okay. I mean, I'm lazy. I don't like carrying that heavy tripod. It's heavy. Yeah. Yes, let's call it good. It was so, so nice. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us. It was oh, awesome. thank you for having yes. me. That was fun. Oh, uh, thank you again so much. We'll talk to you soon. All right. All right. That was good. <laughs> that was fun. Yay. All right. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Frederick Douglass is celebrated as one of the most important abolitionists in American history, but he was also the most photographed American of the 19th century, having 160 known photographs taken of himself. During the Civil War, he delivered four speeches linking photography to democracy and freedom. He saw photography as a democratic art form, widely available to the masses. From his first portrait taken in 1841 to his last, a memento mori captured in 1895, Douglas was photographed using nearly every process available at the time. Daguerreotypes, embryotypes, lantern slides, salt prints, stereographs, CDVs, wet plates, dry plate prints, everything but callotypes and oddly enough tintypes. These 160 images show how Douglas grew as a person, as an abolitionist, and as a public figure. But why was history's greatest abolitionist so in love with photography? To understand that, we have to understand a bit about Douglas's own history. Born into slavery in the year 1818 on a plantation in Maryland, he was separated from his mother at an early age. 
His father was almost certainly the white man who owned him. After being taught to read and write by the wife of an overseer, Douglas understood that, as he later put it, knowledge was the pathway from slavery to freedom. Enslavers and those who profited from slavery understood this too. Broadly, enslaved people were not allowed to learn to read. Many slave states even banned it. Soon, his reading materials were confiscated, and he had to rely upon what he knew and what he could pick up from other children who had not yet been indoctrinated into the philosophy of American slavery. Douglas was passed from overseer to overseer, often as punishment. Though these white farmers did not own slaves, they could essentially lease them as the perceived need arose. It was from one of these farmers that Douglas escaped. Being enslaved in Baltimore, Douglas met and fell in love with a free black woman, Anna Murray. A year after they met, in 1838, she aided his escape to freedom. In less than 24 hours, he was in New York City. Anna soon followed. They married and settled in Massachusetts. At this point in United States history, slave hunters were legally allowed to track down escaped slaves, even if they escaped into so-called free states like Massachusetts. Because of this, the newlyweds had to go into hiding, becoming fugitives. By 1841, the Douglases had settled into their new lives, having gone through a variety of name changes to avoid detection. But hiding was not something Douglas wished to do. He became a licensed preacher and had given speeches and sermons along the northern stops on the Underground Railroad, preaching mostly to the formerly enslaved. He became active in the abolitionist movement, attending meetings and giving speeches of his own. His coming out was at the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society's annual convention. At only 23 years of age, Douglas spoke directly about his life as a slave. It was also in the same year that he had his first likeness taken. This image of a serious man staring directly into the camera, into the viewer's eyes, is striking. He looks young, stylish, and incredibly serious. The stern look was likely due to the fact that early daguerreotypes required the sitter to remain as still as a statue for at least an entire minute to capture the image. The pose struck by Douglas would become indicative of his early portraits. Of those taken before the Civil War in 1861, most show him staring directly into the lens. In the early years of his activism, he was searching not only for his voice, but also for his look. Following a few attempts at normal portraits, where he stared off into some distant point, he returned to the direct stare again and again. This was a photographic representation of his defiance, of his anger. When his hands were visible, they were fists. In one image, his arms are crossed. Only after emancipation would his hands relax, but that was still some point in the distant future. Douglas fell in love with photography because he understood how closely it was linked to freedom. In the North, especially after 1850, photography as well as speech and the press were largely uncensored, especially when it came to abolitionism. In the South, however, the slave states not only had fewer photographers, but freedom of speech and the press. And even photography was curbed in the efforts to suppress anti-slavery sentiment. The abolitionist movement used photographs of escaped slaves, often with scars, to show the horrors of slavery. Prints of these atrocities were spread into the South in an attempt to stir up the cause of anti-slavery. Depicting the horrors of slavery was one thing, but Douglas understood that photographs, especially portraits, could show not only slavery was bad, but that black people were human. The press, especially in the slave states, but also throughout the North, often depicted black people as exaggerated dehumanizing caricatures. Douglas saw that the photograph could dispel those myths. If photographs of black people could just be seen by whites, 
they might look upon them and see the humanity. Douglas wished for his portraits to be seen by all, but the technology was simply not there. Most typically, photographs were rendered as etchings and then printed in the newspapers. While the photographic image transferred perfectly from the original glass plate to the print, an etching was someone's interpretation of an image. In one such case, Douglas saw an etching of himself interpreted from a painting made in 1849. The engraver, a white abolitionist, depicted Douglas with a slight smile where there was none in the original. Douglas was furious. It was then he concluded that a black person could never have impartial portraits at the hands of white artists referring to etchings. He continued writing, It seems to us next to impossible for white men to take likenesses of black men without grossly exaggerating their distinctive features. Douglas believed the photography overcame these preconceived notions. He held that even the most racist white photographer would take a truthful photograph of a black man. Photographs, he understood, were simply a mirror. While the photographer might be an artist, they could not help but show the subject how the subject wished to be shown. In the photographs of Douglas, we see him unsmiling and serious. This was purposely done to be in stark contrast with the trope of a happy, jovial slave and servant. At the time, the South often depicted their slaves to be happy and prosperous in slavery. Douglas wanted all who viewed his portraits to understand that was absolutely not the case. Prior to the Civil War, Douglas sat for at least 15 portraits. Through his travels, oration, and photographs, Douglas had become the most famous black man in the United States. When John Brown raided Harper's Ferry in 1859, an event that many credit for tilting the country towards Civil War, Douglas fled to Canada and then to England to avoid arrest, returning around the time of Lincoln's inauguration. And even through this, he managed to sit for at least three portraits. During the war years from 1861 to 1864, Douglas sat for at least 25 portraits. These were often taken as he traveled and often to commemorate the speeches he gave in cities like Philadelphia, New York, Portland, Maine, Chicago, Hartford, and Washington, D.C. Douglas met with Abraham Lincoln to discuss the treatment and pay of black United States soldiers. While he celebrated Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, he was frustrated the president refused to even entertain the idea that black men should be allowed to vote. With Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, the Union soldiers were barred from returning liberated slaves to their former owners. And with that, Douglas turned from an abolitionist to a civil rights leader fighting for equality. One of the tools in his arsenal was photography. In December of 1861, following the early battles of Bull Run and Wilson's Creek, Douglas delivered a speech to an overflowing crowd at Boston's Tremont Temple. In it, he praised Louis Daguerre, the French inventor of the daguerreotype. What was once the exclusive luxury of the rich and great, spoke Douglas, is now within reach of all. The humblest servant girl, whose income is but a few shillings per week, may now possess a more perfect likeness of herself than noble ladies and even royalty with all its precious treasures could purchase 50 years ago. Douglas marveled at how quickly the world had adopted photography. He referred to photography as a social force, reaching and swaying the heart by the eye. He opined that though photographs are unchanging, our interpretations are situational. He gave the example stating that our great military heroes look better even in pictures after winning an important battle than after losing one. Because of this, Douglas suggested that pictures should be left to make their own way in the world. All they can reasonably ask of us is that we place them on the wall in the best light and for the rest, allow them to speak for themselves. The point of his speech was that humans alone had the power to make and appreciate pictures. Douglas was using the idea to argue that black people were indeed human, a point that hardly could be stressed enough in the 1860s. 
and this point was made to argue that the North should be urging those enslaved in the South to rise up. It was to urge the United States to allow black men to serve in the Union Army. In another speech, delivered following Lincoln's re-election in 1864, Douglas returned to Degury, claiming that he taught the god of day to deck the world with pictures far beyond the art of ancient masters. Douglas noted that almost every small town had a photography studio. The farmer boy can get a picture for himself and a shoe for his horse at the same time, and for the same price. Following the Civil War, Douglas continued his work as a civil rights leader, fighting for black equality, as well as for the equality of the sexes. Even prior to the war, he was a vocal supporter of women's suffrage. This idealism was reflected in the photographers he selected to shoot his portraits. The post-war years saw the output of Douglas's portraiture flourish. This idealism was reflected in the photographers he selected to shoot his portraits. The post-war years saw the output of Douglas's portraiture flourish. James Presley Ball, a black photographer from Cincinnati, was known for his lavish and inviting studio. He photographed Douglas in 1867. Two years later, Douglas sat for black photographer James Harum Easton, who ran a studio in Minnesota with his wife. He also sat for Lydia Cadwell in Chicago for four portraits in January of 1871. One of these was made into a beautiful charcoal print by Ava Webster, an artist from Chicago. There was also Cornelius Batty, who photographed Douglas in 1893, before becoming the photography instructor of the Tuskegee Institute. In 1894, Douglas sat for James Reed, who created two stunning portraits showing a wizened Douglas in his later years. Most of the images we see of Frederick Douglas are from the 1860s and before, but looking upon his post-war photographs, we see a man crafting his appearance. His face might have been one of the most recognized in the world, but Douglas was changing, and these changes were captured by the camera. While before he depicted himself as defiant, he was now majestic, dignified. He saw himself as a statesman. He rarely used props, though the ones he chose were telling. Lincoln's cane, a newspaper, a speech. Douglas was sometimes photographed in groups— and often it was obvious that he was used to the camera. While the other people in these photos are blurred from fidgeting and moving, Douglas was still, staring, statuesque. The later photos show a man almost relaxed, in a series of portraits taken in 1894 during a trip to Boston to speak in defense of woman's suffrage, Douglas is seen to be much less stern as he sits comfortably in a chair adorned with lion's heads. Douglas was photographed with his grandson, Joseph, in 1894. Seated, he looked upon Joseph playing the violin. This series was taken in New Bedford, Massachusetts, following a speech at the YMCA. Joseph played on the violin before and after. In the photo, Douglas is holding a copy of that speech. The final portrait taken before his death is the only known picture showing Douglas with a smile. It would be easy to read too much into this, especially since it was taken during the same sitting as the photos with Joseph. Here was a man with a life unlike any other before him or after. Not only was he the most photographed person in the country, he was the most photographed black man in existence. His speeches, his activism, his writing, and even his photographs helped to free untold numbers of the enslaved. He inspired countless to the cause of abolitionism prior to the war. He recruited free black men into the service of the United States Army during the war. And after, he devoted his life to the fight for equal rights and suffrage, paving the way for the multitude who followed. Through every turn of his life following his liberation from slavery, Douglas was photographed. He saw photography as freedom. He understood the power of the image. Douglas saw how photography could be a great equalizer. To Douglas, the photograph was objective. It showed the humanity of his race, beaten down, prejudiced against, and misrepresented in cartoon and minstrelsy. Douglas believed that if a racist white man would look upon a portrait of a black man, even he would be able to admit that there was a man. Douglas ultimately saw photography as art. It could, he believed, 
show life as it was meant to be. These photographs were meant to be seen, to be distributed. He believed that every home of a black family should have a photo of a black leader on their wall. The parents could then teach their children of the sacrifices and actions. The photographs taken of Frederick Douglass span five decades. With each sitting, with each photo, Douglass reiterated his struggle for the rights of the black race. Each photo was a demand for liberation and equality. In this, Douglass was himself an artist. He knew the power of his own face, his eyes, his pursed lips, his dress. He knew how to sit for the photographer, and he knew how to distribute the photos taken of him. Every step of the process was deliberate and his own. The photographer might offer suggestions and poses, but he was Frederick Douglass, and he knew how to be photographed. Much of the information you've heard comes from the book Picturing Frederick Douglass, an illustrated biography of the 19th century's most photographed American by John Stoffer, Zoe Trod, and Celeste Marie Bernier. While some photographers revel in the pricey books and well-bound monographs, we prefer the classic zine in all of its humble and lo-fi glory. You can keep your lithographed rag paper. We'll take inkjet and Xerox goodness any day of the week. But on this day, we've got Grainy Blur by Alex Purcell to review. What do you think of this, Vanya? Well, Alex introduces the zine simply by explaining that photography cannot just be described as a hobby. It holds many variations to him, and I'm pretty sure we could all agree with that. Alex made this zine with some of his favorite images taken with his pinhole camera, or as he puts it, his lo-fi camera gear. <laughs> as most of us can overlook these types of camera, Alex not only shoots with them, but basically puts us all to shame. We really get to see how his creative eye and the limitation of slow shutters blend together in black and white. So my thing with Alex's pinholes is that I really can't tell that many of them are actually pinholes. They look mostly like long exposures taken with a more or less normal lens. And this is a kind of pinhole photography that interests me. And I'm not sure if I've seen it done better than Alex does it. I remember one of these shots from when I was with Sunny 16. I mentioned this at the beginning of the episode. He strapped a pinhole camera to a shopping cart or trolley, as they call it over there, and did his shopping before queuing, which we call soccer, I think. So yes, I, I'm really, really not a huge fan of pinhole usually. But with Alex's, I am. And I think it's that disconnect from normal pinhole photography that really makes me love this stuff. You can pick up Grainy Blur zine by contacting Alex at Grainy Blur on Instagram and or Twitter. Twitter. And we'll have the links in the show notes. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can head over to patreon.com slash all through a lens. We've got bonus episodes and full length interviews and a growing number of things. And this includes the full interview with Octavia. And having just done that interview... <laughs> The full version is is really, really fun. She has a great sense of humor and really just needs to be heard. And the full interviews, you can get them at the 120 level, which is $5 a month. Most importantly, it's a way to help us pay for hosting equipment supplies and that newspapers.com account that really comes in helpful pretty much every damn episode. We'd also like to welcome a few new patrons. Heartless Twyla, Mateus A, Ryan B, Charlie, Dimitri G, Jordan B, and Diane. Thank you all so much for your support. Honestly, we're really 
just in love with what we do. And we're so happy that you like it enough to support us. Thank you. We also have, of course, a featured patron. Yes. This episode, it is Colin Cameron. That's at cbc.analog on Instagram. CBC. He must be Canadian. (laughs) Yeah. His stuff. Damn. Train pictures, architecture. Yes. Black and white, color. It really runs the gambit. And I, for myself, I kind of like that singular look. Mm-hmm. But with other people, I love variety. I love being able to see all of this variety. Yeah, he's got a lot of variety. I really love his train where it has the two tracks mm-hmm. in color. It looks like Montana. It's gorgeous. Uh, this twisty building. That yeah, that's I, a trippy building. I don't know where building. that's from, but man, it is. Twisty twisty it is twisty yeah a lot of his architecture is really odd angles and just a little off kilter a little unsettling I, I love it i really love it and a mm. lot of water too yeah there's a really cool downtown alley in vancouver it reminds me of the never-ending story when he runs to hide from the bullies in the alley and he has to like you know they chase him down the alley yeah. i'm yeah. pretty sure this is the alley where okay. they throw him in the dumpster it could have been <laughs> i have i've actually not not seen that are you serious? I think I'm serious. Wait, wait, wait. You've never seen The NeverEnding Story? Mm-mm. What the? I know. I know. Eric. I know. Okay, you guys, this isn't the first movie. He hasn't seen The Sandlot, you guys. Yeah. What that's the true. hell? You know, it's just one of those things where I, I just, I never, it just was never something that, that appealed to me, I guess. Also, Sound of Music. Haven't seen that either. Yeah, I mean, but all of these movies are things that are kind of ingrained in pop culture. So I feel like I've seen them. Like, I feel like I've, I've known enough about them that I get the references that people make to them. Mm. You know, what my, one of my all time favorite movies is? No. Well, I had it on VHS and it was two tapes. Oh, that could only be the Ten Commandments. Yes. <laughs> You'd think Godfather, maybe? No, oh, no. Ten Commandments. I fucking love that movie. Uh, okay. Well, anyways, we were talking about Colin, damn it. <laughs> Let's continue. So, yes. Holy shit. Have you seen this one, Cam Loop Lakes? Oh, that is so cool. It's Ektar. He's got like a really fun foreground of yeah. flowers. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. that's fun. Yeah. Isn't it? He kind of does it all. So, definitely check him out. Thank you so much, Colin, for listening to our bullshit. <laughs> thank you for your support. And thank all of you for your support. Oh, and that's pretty much all the podcasts we've got for you today. But first, Vanya, what is your upcoming week looking like? Mm, It's a little nutty, to be honest. Nutty? Yes. Like madness? Yes. Well, it is always a little bit mad. But yeah, the rest of the week I am developing and scanning and I have another Birdwell shoot this Friday. So I'm totally nervous. There's like... This is like a legit one with stylists and people. Oh my God, people? I know. Yeah, like yeah, actual people. Gross. I know. I'm like wondering if any of them will help me load my film. <laughs> be like, hey, <laughs> so like <laughs> this used to be a thing. <laughs> Can you do this for me? They might not do that. Probably not. I'm slightly terrified. I'm also very excited and uh, yeah, shooting in film. So very excited. What about you? What's uh, next couple weeks looking like? Oh, I'm just developing and scanning. That's pretty much my life at this point. Mm. So much so that I 
think I might just stay home this weekend. But there's a few scenes out there that kind of keep calling me, so who knows? Before we go, we'll remind you of the answering machine question for the next episode. Yeah, so what's your least favorite thing about being a film photographer? <laughs> we don't want you to get all negative and complain. Please don't leave like a ton of complaining messages. No one wants to hear you complain. But think about it. It's your least favorite thing. You love film photography. What is the thing that you love? Be a little less than everything else. And don't <laughs> and don't say scanning. We got scanning covered. Oh, come you on. Like it. You can't no. just like, I mean, I can. who's the boss can. here? The rule. You can't make the rules up. We can, we, yes, we can. <laughs> yes, we can. It's our podcast. We can do whatever we want. I was going to use scanning. <laughs> oh, you're going to have to dig a little deeper. Uh, okay. Thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail. And we're at allthroughalens on Twitter. You can also check out our show notes on allthroughalens.com. Vanya is at surfmartian. And Eric is conspiracy.of.cartographers both on instagram and speaking of instagram make sure to hashtag your stuff hashtag all through lens podcast to be featured we also do a spotify playlist for each episode so check those out and see what we're listening to just search all through a lens you can also find our episodes on spotify as well as on stitcher apple Podcasts, google play and wherever the hell else you find your podcast just subscribe and leave us a review it really helps the music you're hearing now is from last regiment of syncopated drummers which you can find at lastregiment.com Thank you all so, so much for listening. We love you. See you in a couple of weeks. Um, Anya? Yes? Do you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go! <laughs> Wonderful. There's your stinger, motherfucker. <laughs> ah. 1894.